welcome to this Law in Sport podcast with me, Sean Cottrell, the founder and CEO of Law in Sport. I'm delighted to welcome, uh, I can now say, a regular guest uh, on the Law in Sport podcast, um, a Law in Sport editorial board member, um, and one of my favourite characters, I would say, and professionals within the sports law community, and that is Professor Jack Anderson, who's currently based at the University of Melbourne, obviously in Melbourne. Uh, Jack, thanks for joining me. Thank you. How's life down under? Uh, life down under is very good at the minute. Uh, we're just coming towards the end of um, summer, so it was uh, 25 degrees today, so it was uh, a good day. But uh, it's great to be, I must admit, it's great to be in Melbourne. It's an incredible um, sporting city and so much going on, uh, cricket, tennis, and we're just about coming up into the AFL season and uh, it's incredible to see how Melbourne just goes mad about AFL. So it's it's a great sporting city in a in a good sporting nation. We won't get too carried away with the Australians, but uh, yeah, it's great and it's a great uh, then for us uh, at the university in terms of um, sports law as well. So it's good. And so essentially, you're stepping into if it's the right way to say it, into um, Hayden Opie's uh, role, right? So Hayden, you know, maybe give us a bit of background. Hopefully, we're going to get him on the podcast at some point. Um, but he was sort of one of the, the sort of leading figures in in the development of sports law in Australia. Yeah, he basically is the leading figure in in, in development of sports law in Australia. He first started teaching and offering sports law programs at the University of Melbourne probably in the late eighties. And then, you know, mainly at undergrad level and then built it up slowly and has developed a uh, grad dip and master's program in sports law, which is, you know, one of the leading ones in in the world. And um, he's built up a very good model in, in terms of teaching it as well in that you get week intensive courses so people fly in from all parts of australia or can hopefully more and more do so online and you get these kind of you know top sports law people in to teach you know a week intensive and then you can build it up and credit for a master so you know for example in april we have richard mclaren is coming over uh, to do something on sports dispute resolutions, which, you know, are sports disputes and how they're resolved. And that's going to be uh, very interesting, um, not just from the doping perspective, but given his uh, experience as a whole. And so so it's, it's a great program. And to be honest, it's a great program to teach on because in Melbourne, you have so many sports bodies based here. Uh, you have so many in-house lawyers. You have so many uh, good sports administrators and you get them in for a week to teach them on an intensive basis. And to be honest, you learn as much from them as, you know, I or Hayden or any of us could uh, give to them. So it's, it, it's a really enjoyable program for me and uh, hopefully for the students as well. And you're also involved with ANSLA as well, I believe, um, the Australian and New Zealand Sports Law Association. Is that right? Yeah, the Australian uh, New Zealand Sports uh, Law Association, probably one of the stronger sports law associations that you'll find. Uh, they have an annual conference in October, um, which is extremely well attended and uh, in various, it goes around kind of various parts of Australia and New Zealand. A nice mix, actually, of um, academia, uh, practitioners, uh, sports administrators and athletes. So it's, it's, a, it's a very good mix. I mean, Australia is... It's such a sporting nation. Like, I mean, for they've got 25 million people. They've got 90 um, professional sports units, if you like, between men's and women's sports. It's incredible for that country. And even you look at sports like 
cricket or AFL or NRL than rugby league, which is largely Sydney-based. But the TV rights that they get from a relatively small domestic market is absolutely huge. So it's it's a pretty sophisticated and competitive market, and it's an uh, you know a really interesting one from a sports law perspective. Yeah, there's, there's so much going on. I was listening to, um, forgive me, I was listening to someone's podcast on football. James um, Kitchen was. Uh, on one kitchen. and yeah mm. kitchen so it was on one and um mm. uh talking about some of the issues around going on in football at the moment around coaches rights stuff it was an excellent podcast i was pre- pleasantly surprised by a journalist i was really impressed uh mm. by the depth of, of of knowledge around sports law issues because sometimes you know it can be very superficial but they actually you know really got into it and I'm, you can just tell that there's a such a you know living up the australians are living up to the reputation of being you know sports mad which is really which is really yeah really i mean Yeah, absolutely. And the the interesting one, football is an interesting one because now at the minute there's um, some administrative and governance issues with um, Australian football. But, you know, they they are linked into Asia generally as well. So that's, you know, and that's of itself a fascinating um, football market. I still think, you know, in Australia, football, soccer is kind of, has yet to fully realise its uh, potential but, you know, it's such a competitive market. I mean, even the way they organize their sporting season, you know, we're going to have AFL now for the next six months. And, you know, you follow that with maybe horse racing and then tennis gets its go in January. So it's a really, really competitive market, which are drawing from a very, you know, relatively small consumer pool, which makes them very sophisticated in terms of how they market their mm. sports and how they advertise. So it's, you know, it's an interesting one to study in that sense because it kind of has aspects of the American sports model, but also the traditional, if you like, European model. Yeah, as the, well. common, the Commonwealth model, right, to a certain degree. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah oh, that's yeah. really interesting. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's always good to speak to um, uh, to professors and lecturers and people just generally in academia because, uh, you know, I think it's one of those, you know, I think Mark James and, and, and yourself have always been saying this, that we need more connection between the two, between practitioners. And I know those guys like Glenn Wong and, and ASU, um, as Arizona State University, doing some cool stuff. I was lecturing at the Is Day course. They're trying to do a similar type of thing. I think there's, um, that's when you get the most richness is when you get the, t- the, the two worlds collide as opposed to, you know, just, just being independent of each other. You don't get the best perspectives. Oh, no, absolutely. And look, traditionally, when sports law was taught in universities in the UK or Australia, it was kind of taught as a final year subject for undergrads because it gave them a little bit of tort, a little bit of contract, a little bit of criminal law. So it's a useful teaching tool. But now it's developed its own kind of momentum. And like what we really see with, you know, if you like the synergy or whatever they call it, between the professionals and uh, academia, you know, it certainly does enrich it. So you know, I was uh, down the other day in, in Melbourne, in the city itself, talking with the racing integrity people and, mm. you know, uh, talking about um, match fixing and race rigging issues. And, you know, they were telling me about this. Really, it's the stewards on the day who do a hugely important uh, work and that we can talk about all the tribunals that come afterwards. But they have to call the race, if you like, on the day. And that, that those kind of details and how okay. they're trained that's that's the real stuff that you tease out and that that comes across you know we've had links with the players association about negotiating collective bargaining agreements you know so an academic can give the broad spread of a framework 
but the nitty gritty of it yeah, and how it's dealt with. That's where you get. So, so that's that's what I really like about the master's program, where you can literally teach it by case study, and yeah, so it's a fascinating way to for me to teach and to learn as well. Yeah, and it's something you know. At our conference, we obviously we've got a global mentoring scheme that we're we're, we're launching at the moment, which is super exciting. And uh, mm. one of the things that came up, I did the education panel, and I wanted it. It was not something that you know, you'd normally necessarily see at a sports law conference, but I really wanted it there for the reason that to have. Um, a detailed discussion around how people approach it and we'll probably do a similar one this this year because i think we did get a lot of really positive feedback surprisingly so actually i was a bit worried that people wouldn't engage with it uh that much because you know it's not as sexy as media rights or, oh yeah or, or, or doping oh, no. or whatever it is but the um actually yeah. you know i think it's super important to look at you know whether it's from like undergrad or even you know school young athletes you know all the way through to Senior judges, how are we looking after professional development? How are we encouraging uh, best practice to be shared uh, and shedding a light on some of these finer details? Because I think sometimes uh, some of the policies, some of the approaches, um, and even some of the lecturing um, can be um, oh, can, can, can 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 miss out some critical pieces of information because we're not doing anything as a as a group. Obviously, I've got a vested interest in this running a, a bit, running yeah. law in sport, yeah. but um, no, you know, but I'm... it is something that matters to me because you know, for, for you know, it's better that we you know, for our, it's better for our business, obviously, but no, just more broadly though, it's better that everyone is upskilled, right? The more people who are upskilled, the better it is for sport. <laughs> we all love sport. The, so the more need that we have better governance structures, better commercial contracts, you know, every, you know, a bit more investable um, and more opportunities. So, um, no, it's really interesting. So we need to, I've taken started to take a real keen interest to actually look into these programs and and see the different approaches because you know there's always you know again though there's I say this a lot. I feel like a broken record on this point, but there's you know more than one way to skin a cat, right? There's, there's different approaches for uh, that people respond to given their their, their time commitments and. Um, and how they like to modes of which they like to study. Absolutely, and uh, what we've noticed is, so I still teach a little bit undergrad and sports law. They all have to do a research paper, but they they go out and they contact sports bodies and they ask, is there a particular area that you'd like to have researched, or is there something that you would like us to do a bit of scoping research on? And I mean, some of the feedback they get is tremendous. So we had a just off the top of my head, we had a student last year who did something on biometric data or personal health data that is gathered on AFL players in training or in the draft system. Yeah, who owns that data? Yeah, Where is it stored? Yep. So it was just a simple, straightforward project, but the privacy and data protection issues that have come out of that have been absolutely fascinating. Joe, so I think, I think that's that, an excellent you know, approach. That's the way. Yeah, that's an excellent approach, mm. and I'd say that that's not any approach students uh, that the students should take. That's an approach um, practitioners should take. <laughs> you know, is there anything we can help you with? Yeah, you know, do you need any research done? You know, particularly if they're looking, you know, depending on what their time commitments are like, if they're looking to build relationships, yeah. what a great what. Um, a, a great way we do it you know we reach out to people and say and we say it all the time you know let us know if there's an issue let us know because we've got obviously hundreds and hundreds of people want to write on topics and do research yeah um you know yeah. all over the world right so we can you know if there is a problem we'd love to look into it um and see yeah. what issues are there oh it's brilliant so yeah um, uh, yeah, yeah, go, yeah. Go, go, go for it jack sorry no, just uh, and another one we came up with was uh, just about uh, injuries on the sports field and various different jurisdictions within Australia. And, you know, if someone gets injured, who is liable, to what extent they're liable. And just a very simple, straightforward research paper, which outlines different approaches in the various states. But it, 
absolutely, you know, gold for certain sports bodies. Yeah. Because I said, we never had the time to do something like that. Oh, brilliant. And, and then you build in it. So, so that's the idea, you know. That's great. I, I, I want to read both of those papers. I think, I think you might have actually put the person who did the biometric one in contact with me, I think. Uh, yeah, because yeah, yeah, because yeah, yeah, you know, obviously we do stuff on wearable technology, and obviously that's one yeah. part of that. And I think it's going to be an increasing area of interest and importance mm. within sport, and particularly around mm. those sports uh, where you do have collective bargaining. I think it's going to become a hot topic. Um, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah uh, the NBA is kind of the leader in that. Yeah, yeah. so they are very, very. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah. So, so um, that's. Well, thanks for that insight. Um, sounds fantastic. And, um, you know, if anyone uh, wants to, you can, they can follow Jack on, on Twitter. Uh, can you mind, you changed your Twitter handle recently. Can you remind me what, remind everyone what it is? No, oh, it's, uh, it's at Sportslaw Melb, M-E-L-B. So, uh, I'd, I'd, so I'd uh, recommend my avatar is a My avatar is a, a Paul Schools um, <laughs> one, so I'm very easy to follow. So don't, don't worry about that. You know? <laughs> so, yeah. so but I'll check it out. It's really, I, I, I follow you uh regularly just to keep up to date you you're, you're obviously you know keeping an eye on most things so you're a good person to follow for that regards but the reason why um i wanted to do the podcast um or get you on the podcast was that in the build-up to the the winter olympics uh you wrote a piece basically uh for the conversation publication um mm-hmm. basically saying you know uh, with the Russian scandal, what, what can we learn really from the from the saga that we have with this with the Russian doping scandal, but particularly in the build up and how it was handled um, b- b- before the uh, the Winter Olympics? And so I wanted to t- like explore some of that with you, and then given now that we know in Russia being reinstated, um, to just get your views on it really, and maybe delve into what you know what what you think could be done to improve the current situation. Because within that, as a background, maybe you can give some of that background. Cass came under huge criticism and came under spotlight. Mm. So I wondered if you could just yeah explain your views on that because I thought it was an interesting article. We'll link to it. Um, at the bottom of the podcast um, but I thought it was a really yeah, yeah. really really interesting article and obviously there's been some other comments and, and, and articles on, on some of the issues in the past so I thought we'd try and bring those t- together Yeah I mean the, the whole Russian uh, at the recent Winter Olympics it goes back obviously to Sochi and when when you think of it it, it was a very straightforward principle um, the report mainly by Richard McLaren basically said that at the Sochi Games, the Russian anti-doping agency became the Russian doping agency. That That's basically what was said. And then that put sport, um, and particularly the IOC, in a conundrum, because you're dealing always with high politics here. And eventually, in December, they came to the scenario that they would... Um, ban Russia from the next Winter Olympics and this very complicated uh, procedure whereby certain individuals could be eligible. Now, I suppose, kind of winding back, they could have done what the International Paralympic Committee did Mm. and just say, no, blanket ban, and slowly but surely we'll see how things develop. But for various reasons, they said, and that's because they're a member. That's because sorry, Jack. That's that, and this is one of these things to, to I think that we're following. That. That's because they're a membership association, right? They're a members organisation. They can ban the members, you know, if they if they so if they so please. Oh, absolutely. And the uh, what happened with the International Paralympic Committee is obviously there was an appeal to CAS by the Russians, and CAS said exactly what you said. Look, if you know these are the grounds that they're banned. 
we respect that decision. Mm. But the International Olympic Committee, for various reasons, took a different approach. And then it went through its various uh, commissions, the Oswald Commission, etc. And we had the first kind of big cast case whereby a certain amount of athletes, about 28 to 30, the CAS panel in question said there was insufficient evidence against them uh, to see the, uh, to hold that they were doping. But in a way, it's, it's a very, the overall picture that we've got to think about in this is our current doping system, and there's an Australian twist to this, our current doping system is designed to catch individuals. So when it comes to institutional, even team doping, the system isn't designed for us. Mm. And that's, I think that's the key point. So, you know, in a team sense in Australia, they will always talk about the Essendon situation, whereby essentially you had a team of players who are told to take certain things. And um, then they were uh, eventually, uh, there were certain positive tests, et cetera, you know. But so that's, that's a key point going forward for anti-doping. And I know WADA has various uh, reforms in mind, but how do we react to well, institutional doping? And also, though, but with the, with the, the Essendon case and, and looking at the, uh, the Russians who, who appealed to CAS, the difference between the two, in my view, is their counsel, right? The advice they got on understanding some of the, you know, the nuances of sports arbitration and particularly CAS and that you increase the likelihood of success if you do take the cases individually as opposed to collectively. Yeah, yeah, there's an element, but there's also, there was also an, an element that, and it's a one for the IOC to, to uh, kind of uh, think about as well. Why was this all last minute? Mm-hmm. I mean, what happened was originally at Sochi, we had the kind of big um, outcry in 2016 with whistleblowers, etc. And yes, Two months before the next Winter Olympics, we have all of this kind of um, machinations, legal machinations, etc. So that that's that that's a question um, to answer as well. You know, uh, I mean, the first cast case where the IOC effectively lost, I mean, their lawyers were under tremendous pressure to, if you like, get across the point that institutional doping could be linked to the individuals in question. That, you know, that's a difficult case to make, yeah. and rightly so. And they didn't make it. Cass said it was insufficient. So so it's, they're the kind of things, you know, the overall things, this institutional doping, but also the manner in which the IOC handled it. And I would say with that as well, with the IOC, when the first case, Cass case was handed down and the... The IOC got a, if you like, a bad result for them. They seem to have no contingency plan thereafter. It was almost lash out of cast, forgiven, if you like, in inverted commas, the wrong decision. And, you know, even the PR, the press releases were quite aggressive in some ways. You know, and, 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 and so on that point, Jack, I, I just want to sort of explore that, just stop you there and explore that point, because mm. this is something that I think that, that yeah, people often in countries particularly where there is you know good rule of law where they have independent judiciary and stuff they can take this sort of thing for granted and i know that uh there is there are politics in sports arbitration and it's uh, it's not always uh um not always at the the, the decisions and and then some of the judge the, the judgments the awards we should call it 
um, are not always at the standard that, that everyone would would would, would yeah. agree is the, okay. the highest standard. I acknowledge all of that, but there is a concerning narrative around. Well, I thought there was a concerning narrative uh, when these uh, in Cash rejected some of these uh, cases um, that, that Cash came under criticism for not because of their uh, basically coming to the wrong decision. Uh, it wasn't the fact that they were criticising the actual legal reasoning of the decision. It was the fact that they had the wrong outcome was being implied. If, that, if that's, if that's if my assessment is correct. Yeah, I mean, like, when you, you know, when you look at it, there, there should be a separation of powers here. You know, uh, if, if you think of it, the IOC and WADA um, criticised CAST in the aftermath of these things. And if you think of it, WADA is our sports doping prosecutor. Uh, the IOC is our executive. And both of them, together criticise the judiciary. You know, from someone who comes from, you know, a country where separation of powers is important, that that seems, you know, a, a bizarre kind of um, state of affairs. But in some ways, it, it's kind of sports, you know, either the chickens coming home to roost, if you like, mm-hmm. because, you know, there are conflicts of interest there. Um, not the actual, but perceived conflict of interest in that there are certain individuals who are members of, it's like a Venn diagram of WADA, of yeah. some of CAS, some of the IOC. You know, there, yeah. there's definitely that. There's no need for that. There's absolutely mm-hmm. no need for that at all. And the perception isn't a great one because of that. And that's easily, easily fixed. But I, I think, th- you know, Tom... So yeah. I was going to say on that, you say it's easily... I agree with you there. I think it is easily fixed. But the one thing that I'm becoming more convinced about generally with conflict... I've been yeah, I think conflicts of interest is probably one of the singular most uh, uh, overlooked areas. And I was pleased to see in the, the UK co-sport governance is one of the areas that they sort of flagged as, as part of good governance in, the, in UK sport. Um, I, was, I was really pleased about that actually being, um, you know, uh, quite uh, aggressive, let's say, uh, with trying to enforce that. I think that's one of the areas that is often overlooked and, and causes so many problems because, you know, even if we're well-intentioned, and this is a, a whole point, I think, uh, and again, Jack, you're you're more informed about this than me, but mm. yeah, with conflicts or potential perceived conflicts, it just means that you increase the likelihood of of by removing those conflicts or, or at least the perception of those conflicts as well, that you increase the, the the confidence in the decisions that are made, and you're more likely to get the better decisions. Yeah, and I mean, I mean, look, sports communities tend to be quite small, even you know, domestically, even internationally. You know, people kind of in the kind of CAS, IOC, were IOC, what were they know each other quite you know well and come across each other quite frequently, and it's easily avoided. And you know, it's for the good of the system mm. as a whole. I mean, when CAS was set up first, it took a while to gain any traction because it was seen as a creature of the IOC. Mm. And then it eventually developed. Now, there there probably will be more reforms of something like a CAS needed, and certainly all the big parties will need to sit down after, um, you know, the Winter Olympics and, you know, just go through what happened and make sure that it will not happen again. And that's the important um, uh, point to think, and that that you you get some good for sport out of it if that occurs. And and one of the things that the the one of the nuances of those arbitration um, and sports arbitration, particularly, is that people yeah, whilst um, uh, opinions can be awards or can be persuasive, um, you know, every every tribunal is. Um, is not bound by the previous tribunal, right? There's no pres- binding precedent. Yeah. And 
that is something where I think I always pick up people when they say CAS have done this, CAS have done that. And I always say, no, it's like, you know, it needs to be careful. It's the CAS panel because you could have, you know, literally back yeah. to back one, one panel saying one thing one week and the next, in theory, you could anyway. And the next week you'd have them saying another thing, right? Um, and it could be three different, often three different arbitrators. Um, and that's very possible. Yeah. And it has happened, you know, the Webster, Matuslim uh, case being a prime example of that. Um, but, yeah. but and, yeah. and and what do you what do you think about that in terms of like legal certainty uh, and as you know because that seemed to be fine because of the you know the the swift as I said low cost and expe or expedience also can't remember what the, the three things are that it has meant to do or any yeah. sports arbitration yeah. is really meant to do but basically save time and yeah. money um, and and give that sort of legal certainty and and free up the you know make sure that these cases don't go through the. Um, the uh, domestic courts that the yeah. um but then that seems to be really works well uh first instance and you know uh, uh initially in the sports market but as it seems to get more complex and and the legal regulatory environment gets more difficult um is that good enough do we need this as, as james segan wrote uh back in 2014 a grand chamber of cas to try to uh, create more legal certainty what's, what's your view on that yeah, I, I, um, I've been thinking about and, and writing about that for uh, for a long time because, I mean, t- in in the purest sense, arbitration is to resolve the dispute in front of us. Mm. So our concept, particularly our common law concept of precedent, is not technically supposed to apply. But of course, it's inevitable that when you get net issues like Article 17 of the FIFA statutes or uh, proportionality of a match-fixing sentence, that, you know, cast panels do reflect back on what's gone before. You know, they are aware of that. But your problem is, and in some ways cast is a victim of its own success, the more arbitrators you have, and you're getting well over 300 now, you know, the more likely you are to get different outcomes on, if you like, the same things which is fine but where is the self-correcting element to it not everyone can afford to go or wants to go to the swiss federal tribunal so therefore uh, you know a kind of a check like a grand chamber uh, may be the way to go or maybe that you simply um go for a permanent standing tribunal arranged on a first instance um, and grand chamber type basis. And maybe that is where you get uh, a greater consistency. And given the amounts involved increasingly in sport now and, you know, how many times people go to cast and the workload doesn't increase, maybe actually that is the way to go um, for, so for be, our sport. But, so that would be getting sort of experienced judges or something like that to sit full time. Right, or experience yeah, I mean, look, yeah, experience um, judges, you know, I would also think, you know, we tend to think of arbitration in terms of the legal qualifications. Mm. But, you know, when you're dealing with sometimes like a doping case or you're dealing with difficult eligibility issues regarding transgender or whatever, you know, why not consider medical people, science people, you know, a lot of arbitration bodies outside of law and use people who have experience in the area. So, I, I you know, right, I think okay. we have to keep an open mind on that as That's well. So, you know, and I think it would enhance us, you know. No, it's a, it's, a, it's a really good point. And I think one of the, the other things that, you know, obviously there are cast counsel there to, to help 
the arbitrators as well who work there and so those people aren't familiar with it and they provide uh you know the list of um previous cases on the on the um on the similar issues as you, as you highlighted to, to assist the arbitrators it's not like they're just having to find it all themselves there is a, a body of lawyers who work at cas and the same happens at sport resolution there's there's people there who assist the arbitrators we've we've understand that so they, they do try to i guess create some consistency but it's not quite the same as, as, as what you're saying and it still leads to as you said it's probably the inevitability of, of you know becoming a victim of their own success that people are using them so much um that it becomes uh, more difficult and i think you know, this is really interesting um I'm, I'm pleased to get your perspective on it and it's something i will, will sort of go away and think about um I think one of the other things to, 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 that I thought might be worth flagging up, though, out of the 300 arbitrators, I believe there's only something like 30% of them that are used frequently. And you could argue then that because of the the variation, um, and obviously uh, the parties can select, uh, one of, you know, on a panel can select one of the arbitrators, um, the, the, um, which is a whole other discussion around how that, about that process, about whether open, closed lists mm. will work effectively. But you can understand also then why, if they are looking for more certainty, why there's only a small number of arbitrators who are regularly picked. Yeah, I mean, I, I've, I've kind of, you know, I've heard that kind of anecdotally in terms of, uh, you know, the research. Um, I mean, I'm on the Court of Arbitration of our sport. I've done about maybe... Uh, seven or eight cases now, and I've all you know it's it's been a, a good experience in that in that way. But I do I do think you know that the it, a lot of this comes from the Pechstein case, where whatever you think about the merits of it, what basically that Pechstein case is saying is think about the importance of CAS as a dispute resolution body because you're dealing with professional, if you like, misconduct cases mm. um, in, in lots of cases uh, in this uh, or even quasi-employment cases and therefore let's get it right for the benefit of the athletes and that stretches from the appointment of arbitrators to access for justice as well. You know, it's one of the points I, I would be big on, you know, Everyone, when you're talking about casting, they like to talk about the big doping cases. And we had that recent um, American case uh, yeah, the, where the uh, the doping case and the French kissing defense yeah, yeah. and all that. And everyone had great fun discussing those things. <laughs> and the lawyer did very well. Paul Green did extremely well. That would have taken a huge amount of resources to meet yeah. that scientific uh, Absolutely. case. That's simply not available even at a national tribunal level, to many athletes. And, you know, that's something to think about as well. Now, CAS has done things in terms of legal aid, etc. But just in terms of accessibility, ever before we get to CAS and what it does, I think that's an important point for, uh, for athletes as a whole. Because even if they don't take up the opportunity to go to CAS, if they think they could, that does help. I think that's a great point, Jack. I think... Uh looking at this this is not i know we, we talk about cas because they've been a, the, obviously in the in the russian case of central on the central organizations involved but the this applies to a domestic level you know and i think it's often you know it's that that advice that you just given is something that the the i unfortunately yeah. um see a quite uh, quite a lot uh, internationally is that the you know the people think about participating in sport they think about investing in the the infrastructure you know maybe players or athlete wages yeah. and all this other stuff but what they don't even what they don't think about which i 
and again, I've got a vested interest in this, but I mean, generally, even if I wasn't doing law in sport, I, I think it's absolutely uh, important for um, to have access to justice and investing in effective dispute resolution systems domestically as well as internationally is, is crucially important. So, you know, I know that I'm always, you know, and rightly so, I think, you know, trying to critically analyse what CASA are are not doing. Um, I'm also think is you know, we're in a better place having them there at this moment in time. Not to say that it couldn't be improved, but my view is that it's good that we've got that system in the first place rather than, you know, as, as someone once said to me, would you like all the Russian cases going through a domestic tribunal? Um, yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> you know what, would, what, would you, yeah. What, would you, what would you think the outcome for that would be? And so um, yeah. I think yeah. it is really important that, that sports administrators um, in particular, and athletes obviously have that in mind that you know these. Uh, yeah, it's one of those things you need it there as a safety net because you know the chances are something will go wrong is not that high, but if it does, you want to make sure that you have got the system there to protect you. Yeah, yeah, and when yeah. you can and afford. The, 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 yeah, exactly. And there are reforms that are probably needed. The, the idea is to give the solutions and let's debate the solutions and see if we can make the system better. I think that's it. But at a national level, you know, I was involved in some in Ireland as well. And is that, is that uh, a trust is that trust sport? Yeah, across, yeah, 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 just for just and for, also just for. with the G, the GA had a dispute resolution uh, authority as well, um, where I learned a lot, uh, good and bad. But <laughs> one of the things that we found out by just you know, I, I was determined to get some feedback on how people um, got on, and you know, people said, "Oh, we, you know, it, it was a good system, it was pretty efficient, it was pretty quick, and we got the decision and a reasoned award." And then the usual way things happened was costs um, did not follow the event. They were, you know, parties bear their own costs. And what they said was, and this is, you know, not in all instances, I yeah. must say, but they said this cost us an awful lot. We had to hire a legal representative. And so even though we won the case because costs were shared, we faced a significant legal bill. Mm. In some cases, I must admit, they said, well, maybe we should have taken our chances in court. So it's it's a thing to think about the unintended yeah. cost consequences of arbitration, you know, and can the legal profession do, they do a lot in terms of pro bono. I'm absolutely certain of that. But can we do a bit more in, in thinking about that? Because, you know, when you go, and I've seen it time and time again, athletes are up against the sports body. The sports body will have done the doping type cases hundreds of times before the athlete is a unique case and they find it difficult sometimes to represent themselves. Uh, And that's just just a key point at a very basic and national level. Uh, And I think that's important as well. I I think that 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 would take you back to essentially looking, making sure though as well that you're looking at the rules and regulations to make sure that they're, they're easy to understand, easy to follow. And this is my whole big thing about everyone should be able to understand the rules and regulations that govern their behaviour. And I think when you end up in situations as you describe, it's often because of the fact that the athlete wasn't aware um, you know, didn't understand. Maybe they did. In some, don't get me wrong. In certain instances, they absolutely did. Um, but in some, oh, yeah, in, but, but in, yeah, in particularly, yeah. I'm thinking more broadly in in sort of sports governance terms. Um, particularly as we are seeing a sort of this this continual evolution of of sports regulation, and sports governance, and it becoming yeah. more more sophisticated and more professionalised. That that to keep in mind the fact that, that they should consistently. I know that some there are a lot of good national governing bodies at least who are constantly um you know reviewing their rules and trying to make them more uh 
um, concise and easier to follow because you you just increase the you know, the likelihood of having less cases coming before you because people can follow them rather than a lot of the cases, particularly if you look at doping, for example. I always say that you know the vast majority, of most of the Nardos will tell you that most most, most majority of the cases they re- they they receive uh, are not actually people really trying to intend to cheat the system. They just literally just didn't understand what was required of them, you know, or, or made a, a, well, a, 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 a error. Absolutely, like yeah, absolutely. And um, one of the most famous cast cases ever uh, was a, a case called Quigley. It was on a uh, doping, and it said actually strict liability applies both ways in, in terms of doping. It applies to the sports body as well as being strictly liable as to the clarity of their rules and regulations. And you know that's a it's a principle that still applies uh, uh, today. And actually, if you get it right there, you can avoid a lot of hassle later on. Yeah. You know, which is which is the point, which is and the it, whole and, point. Yeah, and you get more engagement, and you get more engagement. I think it's so. I understand though why it can be difficult in practice. It's, it's easy for us to sit here. <laughs> yeah, you as an academic and me uh, running a business yeah. outside of uh, outside of the actual governing body or regulator. I understand that that um, they're fighting battles on multiple fronts like anyone else in any other organisation. You know, they've got a whole bunch of different things. So it's easy for us to sit here and go right. They should take a more contemplative view of this and <laughs> you know take their time and review it. Well, I, know, look, I know, I know, it can be difficult in practice. Abs- yeah. No, absolutely. And look, I know that someone has done their decisions where or are uh, sitting dis- uh, sat in disciplinary tribunals and you know the sports body says, listen, you're going to have to give reasons for this. Uh, you know, and you're going to have to do an award. And like you know, on procedural fairness grounds, the other parties deserve that, but it's it's a lot for a often a volunteer yeah. member to do. So, but you know, so it's easy to say you ought to do this and you ought to do that. The, the only thing is, lawyers are kind of risk uh, analysis as well. If, if you get it wrong, and to a certain extent, we saw that a little bit with UK anti-doping and the legal fees they, you know, with the Tyson Fury thing and all that. Yeah. You know, sometimes look. A little bit so, of so, sorry, I should, I should, sorry, I should just in, say that was so, just to put, so people understand who are listening. That's a case in which uh, the boxer Tyson Fury um, failed a drug test, um, was sanctioned by uh, UK anti doping, and then mm. uh, um, appealed that. And I believe that's right. I don't know, maybe I've got the sequence wrong here. Maybe he was he was issued with a notice for anyway from UK to doping. Then they went to a, a hearing. It went on and on and on. There was a whole bunch of different cases, and UCAD came out and said that the 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 when they report that they I think the legal fees on their side came to four hundred and seventy seven thousand pounds, and which was a huge mm. amount of their budget. Sorry, sorry, Jack. Continue. I just thought yeah. just for those people who are listening internationally yeah. wouldn't know what that that was about. Yeah, no, and uh, that's yeah, that that that's the kind of a summary point. So you know, you've got to be aware of these things that, you know, the, the reason the, the sports disciplinary tribunals exist is because of case law from England, really, in the 80s and 90s, whereby they said, we don't want sport to be judicially reviewed. We want you to solve your own problems in-house and do, do so in a procedurally fair manner. And please go away and do it. And that's that's what they've been told. And that's what they've done. Um, more or less since and that, that, that so that's the important point it's mm-hmm. to help sports resolve and, that, uh, and that was echoed recently with the um, memorandum of understanding between uh, UEFA and now I always get confused with the Council of Europe 
um, or the European Commission. Mm. It might have been the European Commission. Uh, I'm trying to think who it was now. But anyway, um, UEFA just signed a, a memorandum of understanding. And within that, the European body basically said, uh, you know, one of the reasons we want this is because we want, you know, we recognise the um, sports independence. I mean, basically, you know, essentially deal with these matters on your own so we don't have to spend money dealing with it, right? So we, we, if we can work yeah. collaboratively together, that's going to be better for everyone, um, which is interesting, which I just thought was a, just to reiterate that point that mm. that, that, that view is being mm. reinforced uh, consistently over time. Um, Jack, mm. I'm conscious of time. Um, an absolute pleasure to speak to you as always. I always learn a lot um, from speaking to you and give me, give me uh, lots to think about, including going away and looking at the Quigley case. Because um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, uh, I haven't yeah. looked at that for a while. Um, so that, uh, I think the stuff you're doing in, in, in Australia is fantastic. Um, I enjoy it. Yeah, really enjoy following your tweets. Um, to get all the good work. Hopefully we can get you on again. Like I said, it'd be good if we can get you on with uh, another panellist as well. And uh, yeah, keep us posted what you're up to and hopefully as well, give, give Hayden a prod. Um so uh, oh, yeah, 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 to be, yeah, get, get, get him on the yeah. podcast. We'd be great to hear about his story. Um, I know. It's yeah, good. Yeah. It's, from it's, my it's perspective, story, every, yeah. everywhere I go, any Australian I meet, <laughs> his name comes up. As in, oh, my former professor, oh, yeah. pretty much. Uh, yeah. Or, you know, they've, they've, he, he's, he had a very um, positive impact on the market. And I'm sure you're going to do the same in Australia. And I know that you did. Again, I was in Dublin for the... Um, the Irish Bar Sports Law inaugural Sports Law Conference, and, it, and again, your name came up left, right, and centre um, as being cool. a yeah, huge positive influence <laughs> on the Irish market. So I'm sure you do the same in Australia as well. Good, good. Well, I, absolutely, and you know, if it's through Twitter or email, or whatever, you know, I'm always happy to discuss sports law ideas, uh, practical and impractical. So, so do, do anytime <laughs> and uh, anything, anytime you mention Watford, yeah, I'll probably keep you for a half an hour. So, so don't worry about that. <laughs> Good stuff. <laughs> Brilliant. Thanks, Jack. All the best. Good stuff. All right. Thanks for that.